Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Premier Crew. Um, today we've got the usual format, we've got three wines, they're all red wines. Uh, we've got uh, one from Piedmont in Italy, we've got two from France, uh, one's from the Languedoc in southern France, and the other is uh, a red burgundy, which I believe is the first red burgundy that we've actually featured on the podcast, at least on a solo episode for us anyway, um, which is exciting. And um, similar to previous sort of solo episodes, we're going to try and keep this short and sweet, um, looking about the uh, 20 minute mark. So um, yeah, bear with us as we go through. Um, Brooks, how's it all going? I haven't actually seen you because we've been away for the last couple of weeks. I haven't really We've spoken about work, haven't really spoken about life. Um, and it's been about three weeks since you probably caught up. Yeah, well, I had a, a fantastic break. Uh, I was in Thailand recently, uh, which was seriously, seriously cool. So I went to Bangkok. Uh, I went to, I've forgotten the place. Chiang Mai. Uh, Chiang Mai. <laughs> uh, and then I also went to some uh, beach place, which was really, really lovely. Super relaxing. Uh, nice to take some downtime. Eating some wild food. Uh, so, so spicy, but so delicious um yeah how, and, how 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 hot do you have anything oh, that was like like meat okay there? so spicy but not not barbaric okay like okay. there was that because ben and i had a story once because we went traveling to south america together and i <laughs> ate a whole chili so hot that i knocked over glasses in the restaurant ran to the toilet they were giving me milk hugo, hugo was having to wipe his tongue with loo roll because he was in, in so much pain. And when he got up to go to the loo, he ripped the like paper tablecloth off the table and just smashed a water jug on the floor. But then sort of was in such pain, he just proceeded to run to the loo to get... The there was nothing I could do. That that was uncontrollable. So nothing like that. Okay. Uh, and the food was like amazing. And yeah, just an amazing country. Just advise anyone to visit. Um, and yeah, we had a, a lot of fun. How about, how about yourself? You, you were wine tasting in Brunello? Yeah, I was in Italy, which is really cool, in Tuscany, um, in a <clears throat> very small, fairly remote place up in the hills. Um, fortunately, not very far from Montalcino. So um, I managed to do um, I managed to do four tastings, which was really cool. So I did Fulini, Coldorcia, which is the third largest producer in Montalcino. I then went to Laeta, which is the smallest producer in Montalcino. And then I went to um, Colomatoni as well. Best, best wine? Uh, Laeta, 2019. Um, I thought that was... Really, really cool. That 2019 Brunello. Yeah, that was we, that was amazing. You showed me some photos of it. It looks it looks really cool. Incredibly rustic, uh, and a properly sort of one man band type operation. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Um, but he's. Uh, I just read about him and heard like what he was doing. He started making wine when he was 17. And um, anyway, the 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 we're going slightly off topic now. But the 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 land uh, that essentially his family owned, where he wanted to make wine, he wasn't allowed to. Um, register because he was 17 not 18 so he has to get to do it in his mum's name and that's how he started yeah anyway he's he's been going now for um the last 20 20 years or so 22 years so he's um yeah he's got got some experience under his belt now very nice montalcino which is cool and uh yeah anyway here we are back to it let's get stuck into the first wine then um i'll take it away um the first one we're going to try today is our wacky and wonderful wine of the week uh it is from france it's a red wine uh it's from southern france from an appellation called minavois uh and it's by a producer called chateau saint jacques d'alba and we got this one from hanford wines and i think it retails at about 2095 um so pretty reasonable um price point um and minavois as an appellation sits within the languedoc we discussed that a bit um a couple of episodes ago but to recap on the main points on the languedoc 
Uh, it's in the southern France on the Mediterranean coast, and it stretches from Provence through to the Pyrenees. And really, in the last sort of 50 odd years, it's been known for quantity of wine, not quality, uh, which is a slightly sad story because that's not really <laughs> what we're about on the, on the podcast. Um, and to such an extent, I think in the 1980s, it actually accounted for that wine region, 80% of total global production of wine, which is... How much? 10% of total global production. But from one region in France, that's quite crazy when you think about the number of uh, wine-growing regions um, in the world. Obviously, that's expanded a lot, but it sort of sets the scene. But what is really nice and what we really want to showcase today is that that perception and that reality um, is changing quite a lot. And because it's such a sprawling region, there's 23 appellations with some really good sites and the land's cheap. So it's attracting a new wave of really good producers who are doing really, really cool things. Um, a bit on the actual Minervois. I mean, Justice Robinson dubbed it France's best value region. And to give an example of the type of producers who are now starting to actually purchase the land there and grow uh, of Burgundy, mm. who's got famous plots uh, in Von Romanet, like Richborg, um, has actually set up a winery down there. Um, so, you know, if you want to trust someone who knows a thing or two about picking good sites, uh, it's probably a pretty good indication that actually there's some prime, prime plots there. Um, and it just requires some good viticulture and good winemaking practices, and it can produce um, some real magic. And the reds and the whites kind of reflect similar to the Southern Rhone, where the red grape varieties are things like Syrah, Mouvedre, Grenache, and then the whites are Marsan, Roussan, even things like Italian Vermentino. It's a bit of a mixture, um, but that makes it quite a lot of fun because also there's a lot of variety. Um, so the producer is Chateau Saint-Jacques d'Alba. And what's super cool is that the trajectory and history of this producer and this property directly reflects the sort of change in trajectory of the wine region generally. Um, so prior to 2001, Carignan was almost exclusively grown at the property and it was produced in massively high yields uh, and sold in bulk uh, to cooperatives who made pretty average wine circulated around France. Uh, I doubt it was good enough really to be exported. Um, and then in 2001, it was purchased um, by a chap with an absolutely amazing name called Graham Nutter. Yeah. Um, and he was a former banker at JP Morgan. Um, and he set about really increasing the quality um, at the property. Um, he put a lot of money into the uh, property itself, renovating it and the winemaking facilities, um, even though you wouldn't know it from the outside because it's still quite quaint and picturesque and, and, and beautiful and in keeping with the, the surroundings. But some of the key changes he also made were in the viticulture. So he took out the Carignan and then replanted it with Syrah and Grenache um, and those southern, more those southern Rome varietals, mm. and then converted everything to organic viticulture. Uh, and really, the whole place has become, you know, really a bit of a sanctuary for wildlife. Um, there's a natural flowers, things like that. And mm. it's just, uh, you can actually stay there. They've got a small property and it just looks really, really beautiful, like the perfect escape from the city. A little, little ecotourism thing. Yeah. And they're committed as well to um, reducing their environmental footprint. And as much as possible, mm. they use. Mm energy from solar panels to power everything, mm. um, which when you're in the middle of Southern France, I mean, why wouldn't you, yeah, given yeah. how much uh, sunlight exposure they get? So 
he's really gone uh, and set around improving the quality and that's reflected in the wines. And this particular one is very interesting, partly because it reflects that very fresh style of Grenache. So this is 100% Grenache and this wine has quite a nice philosophy. Um, so on the website, it states that it's made to reflect the unpredictability of nature and also to reflect the creativity of winemakers, mm. which is quite nice. And essentially what that means is that it's a rel relatively minimal intervention wine. Um, they ferment it in stainless steel tanks so that there's no oak masking the flavour of the grapes. And then this is probably the most interesting piece about the wine is that uh, upon bottling, it's what's known as sans soufre, which means without sulphur. Um, and sulphur is an additive that's used by most winemakers. And it's also a natural byproduct of fermentation, but sulfur is an additive that's used by most winemakers uh, in order to preserve the wine. And the natural wine movement or winemakers who fit under that umbrella um, use either no sulfur or very low sulfur um, because they feel that it takes the energy uh, out of the wines and masks the flavour. Um, but without wading into that debate too much about what's the best way to do things, um, this is just a really interesting wine because you can try a fresh lifted style of Grenache and also get a sense as to what a sans souffre, no sulfur wine uh, tastes like. But mm. Benny, you've just had a sip. What, what did you think? Yeah, it's really good. To, to me, it just smells like pure raspberries. Um, it's like a little raspberry coolie, but it's not, it's not heavy or sticky at all. Um, and I think <clears throat> we should just say like why we actually chose to get this wine on the podcast as well. Um, so as Hugo mentioned, it's from, it's from Hanford Wines and we went to their um, annual portfolio tasting a couple of months back, probably now. And, um, you know, they had, they had, you know, wines from, you know, all different regions, geographies, et cetera. Um, probably about, I don't know, a hundred, hundred wines in total or something like that. And, um, we both tried this and when we had it, we thought, wow, that's, you know, really good. That's a perfect example of a, you know, lighter profile, lifted, um, lovely fruit driven, very drinkable, uh, red from the Languedoc, not, you know, um, uh, not on the, uh, the typical side of that heavy, sticky fruitiness that I was just talking about. And um, we basically at the tasting thought, yeah, okay, that's a great shout. Let's try and get that on the podcast. Mm. I just um, I just tried it and mm. yeah, it's so drinkable. Mm. I mean, if you put that at a dinner party, um, which is relatively casual, you're not trying to do some sort of fine dining experience. I mean, everyone is going to really like that wine. Um, and yeah, as Ben said, it's just got that lovely lifted profile. It's still got that sort of slight wild flavor of southern france and the southern rhone that you want um you know almost a little bit of that ever so slightly not gamey but herby and a little bit gamey but the key thing is just the purity of the fruit mm. which as you said is almost just like raspberries a bit tiny bit of cherry uh, and just really coating your mouth if we, i think if i was trying that blind i would almost guess that it was a beaujolais mm. not um not a Grenache, but I think that just speaks volumes for, for, for what it is. how pure it is. Let's move on to our next wine. Um, I'll let you take it away. Yeah, let's do it. Slightly, uh, slightly different beast. So um, this wine falls into our good value category for this week. It's a red wine. It's from Italy, northern Italy in Piedmont. Uh, the great variety is Nebbiolo and the producer is La Bioca. Uh, and it's available, for, available from Jeroboam's for £18.95, which um, I think we both know, having tried this wine before, that you're getting a lot of wine for that sort of around that 19, 19 uh, pound price mark. Um, so <clears throat> we'll just break it down a bit, but this is um, uh, a producer, uh, Labioca, that we've actually had on the 
on the podcast previously. We they produce a number of wines, and, and Jeroboam's have a number of their, their different wines they stock them. But um, uh, previously, we had a, a ranchi from Barbaresco by La Bioca, um, which is essentially a, a crew site, a wine from a, a specific site within the township of Barbaresco. Now, this is a Nebbiolo d'Alba Superiore, which is um, slightly different to that and is essentially more of uh, an entry-level wine. Um, so the price point's coming down a bit and it's, uh, you know, less oak-aging and, you know, all that kind of thing, which is, um, you know, great because, uh, you know, getting, you know, getting this for our, getting this for our, for our under 20 quid. Um, so just breaking down what Nebbiolo d'Alba Superiore means, um, in, in sort of very briefly, Nebbiolo is obviously the, the grape variety. And it comes or is grown from uh, the near the township of Alba in Piedmont. Um, and Superiore, you get Nebbiolo d'Alba, Nebbiolo d'Alba Superiore. And Superiore essentially means a, you know, kind of designating an in- increase in quality. And the wines spend a little bit longer in oak, um, 18 months, sorry, a little bit longer in um, uh, maturing, uh, 18 months versus 12 months, six months of which has to be in wooden barrels. And in oak and um these guys are uh doing something a, a, a little bit different because they actually have these hybrid barrels where they've got oak and stainless steel in the same barrel which is quite funky and a little bit in the same barrel yeah yeah in the same oh, wow. in the same barrel and i'll come to that in a in a minute but they they sort of straddle this weird line between you know a traditionalist and, and modern producer quite well um but essentially, that's just a, that's an intro into what Nebbiolo d'Alba Superiore is. And typically, if you're if you're looking for wine off a shelf, it's the kind of thing that can provide really really good value. But you know, it's been you know it's been made well, and it's not as broad brush as a Langay Nebbiolo, which is just red wine from you know basically anywhere in the Langay. This is a step up on that, mm. um, but still coming in at a very reasonable price point. You know, coming to the reasons why we why we pick these wines. Um, we've tried this uh, a few times as well as some of their some of their other wines but I, I i think you actually bought it for like a dinner party or a blind tasting here showed it to me i tried it and thought wow that's really really nice and then um you know lo and behold was slightly surprised by the by the value and then when we were thinking about wines of the podcast we thought well actually it's a really good example of something just like that that, that you know sits under the 20 quid mark um but yeah just a just a, a note on labioca we have featured as i mentioned one of their wines before so uh, just a quick recap they're essentially a small winery um uh, based up in the in the Lange in Piedmont, established in 2012, slightly randomly by a, a Bulgarian winemaker called Bizo Atanasov. <laughs> I know, I was just make sure I got the name right. Bizo Atanasov, who um, essentially went there, decided that the place was you know so beautiful and so amazing that he had to um, go and make wine there, and that became his his uh, his his project. So it's a relatively recently established winery. They've acquired different plots of land since they started and. They've now got seven, uh, seven hectares, sorry, seven parcels of vines, uh, totaling nine hectares under vines. And um, some of those vines have been planted as far back as 1961, um, which is quite cool. So despite being um, a younger winery as such, they've kind of, you know, they bought some vines that give them, give them a bit more. Um, give them a bit more oomph. A bit more oomph, exactly, a bit more history. And um, yeah, just coming on to the sort of traditional versus modernist approach of this, of this winery, they are fairly classical in terms of their their winemaking their approaches to to viticulture you know they don't use uh they don't use new oak and they try and use oak you know relatively sparingly in the ways that they make wine um but then on the flip side they do also have a couple of other funky bits that they do like these hybrid steel 
uh, stainless steel and oak barrels that they um, that they ferment wine in, which is quite different. And they also work with some uh, really rare grape varieties. One of them, I don't know if you've heard of this variety before, it's called Russus Bianco. Oh no, that's a new one for me. Yeah, and they um, they're one of only four producers in the whole of the Lange that actually grow this grape and make wine from it. Okay. Um, which is yeah, you know, pretty pretty funky. And they also make rosé wines. They've got two rosés. I mean. Have you ever drunk a, a rosé from the Lange before? No, no, that, that would also be a first. Yeah, yeah. So they've got this like slightly different way of doing things, but they do sort of err on that more traditionalist uh, side of approach. And, uh, you know, final thing to say about this bottle um, is that when I was doing a bit of research, there's the phrase Sturmer on the front. And I thought, oh, you know, something else I'm going to have to learn I don't know about. But actually, <laughs> <laughs> it's... Um, it's actually uh, in local Piedmontese dialect. It translates to uh, hidden, and okay. it comes from the phrase. Bear with me on this. Vate sturme la nebbia, which means, or roughly translates from this local Piedmontese dialect, to go and hide in the fog. And that's the fog from where the nebbiolo is typically harvested. You know, up on the hills. You know, very romantic scene setting mm. um, from uh, you know from 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 where it grows. But I just thought that was a Quite interesting anecdote to, to to see that on the wine because I didn't know if I didn't know what that was. Yeah, um, I didn't know if it was like um, I don't know. Something. Oh, that's a nice little story. Well, I'd say a couple of things stand out. Um, one, the color. Yeah. Um, so, if you're ever in the scenario, unfortunate scenario, but fun scenario where you have to blind taste, the color is a really big giveaway on Nebbiolo, and you can see that there because it's fairly transparent. Um, you can see all the way through the glass, and it has this almost rusted color. Um, that is just a hallmark of Nebbiolo uh, and it's just quite a good giveaway and the colour is quite pronounced on this like mm. when we compare it to the other two wines and neither of the other two wines are exactly you know dark red in colour for example or, 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 or um, uh, fully opaque mm. so yeah it really stands out in that regard and then on the palate um, and on the nose it's just very fresh vibrant but it's got that nebbiolo structure and actually if you're going to do something that's young drinking from a recent vintage i do think it's best to start with the lange nebbiolos or you know nebbiolo dauber just on the grounds that the tannin isn't excessive and when you have certain barbaresco and barolo young um it's a little bit like you know sort of putting cement in your mouth because it like it's just so strong the tannin uh, but with this it's just really nice and approachable and, you know, if you're chilling on a Friday night, getting some spaghetti bolognese, mm. this is this is a, a really nice wine that you can share again. Uh, and pretty, I'd be shocked if anyone didn't like it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. And it's <clears throat> we've had a, a number of examples where um, those tannins are, you know, the acidity is just so bracing. It's all just... Or just too much. And brace for impact on a on Barolos. Yeah. Young Barolos brace for impact. Just so aggressive. And it is quite enjoyable for a bit, but yeah, you do you do need you do need something. Um whereas this is actually, you know, twenty twenty one vintage. It's 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 good to go. It's drinking very, very well right now. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um Good. Brilliant. Should we move on to the, then the final wine? Let's do it. Brooks, so we've got twenty minutes, remember? Twenty minutes. Yeah. So this is gonna have to be a a, a whistle stop tour. Um but this is our fine wine of the week. Uh, it is from France, a red wine from Burgundy, and then from the specific village of Von Romanet, which we'll be talking a little bit about on this episode. Um, this is by a producer called Domaine Berto Gerbert, uh, and it retails, I think, at about £54 from the Wine Society. Um, we'll have to discuss the Wine Society in another episode because I don't think we're going to get time to do it mm. justice. Because it is quite. We haven't wine from them yet, have we? Uh, 
Not yet, no. Mm. So that that's something that we can do at, yeah. at another time. But a couple of episodes ago, we had um, Tom Harrow, uh, who's the co-founder of Honest Grapes, to give an overview of the 2022 vintage, but also an overview of Burgundy as a region. So tune into that episode if you want, um, I think it's episode 10, uh, if you want you know, a full rundown on Burgundy um, and to get the full experience. But as a bit of an overview, two key takeaways to remember. One, generalizations in Burgundy are completely pointless because it's a region that's all about the nuance, trying different producers, trying different plots of land and embracing that uh, and having fun with it, crucially. Um, but the second one is that if you did want a sort of broad overview of it, there's basically three core sections to it from north to south. The Cote de Nuit, where it's pretty much known for Pinot Noir exclusively, and that's where the best Pinot Noir in the world is grown. The Cote de Bone, which is just south of that, which is predominantly white wine, though there is good uh, red wine made from Pinot Noir there as well, but that's predominantly Chardonnay land, and it's where some of the finest white wine and white, Berg- uh, white uh, sorry, Chardonnay is grown in the world. And then finally, further south, you've got the Cote Chalonnaise, which is a bit of a mixture of red and white uh, from Pinot Noir and Chardonnay again, um, but it's better known for value. And where we're at with this one, and hence it's our fine wine uh, of the week, is in the Cote de Nuit. And the specific village um, is Von Romanet. And whilst it's a little bit pointless getting people to rank the villages of the Cote de Nuit, um, pretty much if you asked a thousand critics uh, what their favorite village was in, the Cote de Nuit, I reckon 90% to 80 to 90% would say some combination of Gevry Chambretin and Von Romanet. And more often than not, in the majority of cases, Von Romanet coming out as number one. It's a slightly pointless endeavor because the different villages have different styles and each of them should just be celebrated and enjoyed. Mm. But, and also personal preference as well. But yeah, exactly. But just for purely the mm. critical mass of Premier Cruz and Grand Cruz that the village of Von Romanet has, it really is number one in Burgundy uh, and in the Cote de Nuit. Um, and a lot of the Grand Cruz are monopolies from some of the most famous producers. So some of the sites like La Tache, uh, La Romanet Conti, uh, are monopolies of Domaine de La Romanet Conti. And these are names that are the theatre of dreams kind of in the wine world. I mean, I think that's kind of what we can say. Um, now... I think that's that's probably underdoing it, given yeah. the retail prices of, of those ones. Well, yeah, yeah that, that's where I was just going on to. Obviously, we've set the scene uh, and the bar high. So just the hallmark of great Von Romanet mm. is that it combines the structure uh, and intensity of something like Gevrechon-Bretin or Nuit Saint-Georges, but then also the elegance and perfume of some of the slightly more elegant villages like Chambon Musigny. And so it just has this wonderful balance. And I think that's really why Von Romanet is so valued and so critically acclaimed uh, in the wine world. Um, and just looking at it again, you know, the annoying thing about this is that it does cost a lot of money. And typically, you know, the most expensive wine in the world, uh, La Romanet Conti by Domaine La Romanet Conti, um, is uh, a Von Romanet. Uh, and so that just sets the scene. I mean, it, it gets up to catastrophic amounts. And that is just frustrating. But I think what's exciting about this wine that we've got in front of us today is that whilst it is expensive at £54, if you want to get 
a little taste of what all the fuss is about. It's not going to be the full Monty experience, but if you want to get a little taste of what all the fuss is about, this can be an entry point that is just about um, affordable. Uh, and it's by um, a really, really good um, up-and-coming producer. Um, so Domain uh, Berto Gerber is run by uh, Amelie, and she has inherited from both her mum and dad's side some really cool vill- uh, vineyard plots um, across the Cote de Nuit. And what she's really well known for is some great wine that she's producing in a small, small village, which is kind of a satellite village called Fixin. And she's really putting that on the fine wine map. And she's got some great premier crews there. And they're definitely, definitely one to look out for just because they're starting to grow in critical acclaim. And they're at pretty approachable price points. And like all things in Burgundy, once a grower with small uh, holdings gets noticed, um, the price really goes up. So it's definitely something to look out for. And I think she could be doing something similar in Fixin to what, for example, Sylvain Patai has done in Marcinet, which is really be the sort of standard bearer of that, of that village. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of her approaches that are really cool. So viticulture, um, she practices organic uh, and her husband is actually the head of viticulture. And he's done stints at some of Burgundy's most esteemed properties, uh, Domaine de la Romane Conte, uh, Perrier Rock, um, and especially wines like that, you know, they rely on quality of grapes because Perrier Rock in particular, you know, is kind of hot on the natural wine scene, um, which means mm. that winemaking is relatively low intervention. So the harvest has to be unbelievable. So we're in great hands in that sense. And then from the winemaking perspective, you know, it's relatively uh, low intervention, although whatever you really want to call that. Mm. But the grapes are fermented in cement. The use of uh, new oak is, you know, relatively low, though there is some in there and it's a little bit evident on the wine. Um, And then finally, um, the temperatures of the cellars are kept really, really low, which extends the fermentation period and also reduces the amount of sulfur that they have to use, even though they do add some um, upon bottling. So what we've really got here is a wine from a top V top village from a good site and from an up and coming producer, but not at a ridiculous price point. Mm. And that is exactly what we're looking for. Um, she's known for her fixant, which means that the wines haven't got catastrophically expensive yet. Um, and so what we've got is a great producer kicking goals uh, in, 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 in great vineyards without the price tag. Mm. Mm. Um, you've just had a sip. What did you think? I think it's really, really good. And I do think it's balanced. And there's a lot there. For me, the oak just needs to like settle a tiny bit still on the nose, but it's drinking super well. Um, I think, you know, as Tom Harrow put it quite nicely, <clears throat> when he was talking about red burgundies, you feel it in the cheeks. There's this, um, you know, a strong impression of fruit, but there's this elegance and this, you know, vibrancy to the wines. That means, you know, they're not heavy. The word that comes to my mind, having just tried it, is balance mm. on all aspects of it. The nose is really you know, it piques your interest because you get this nice fruit, but then you can tell there's a lot of complexity there. And then on the palate, all the way through, it's just very, very balanced. I don't think it's going to knock your socks off in any one particular angle. I don't think you're going to say, God, the fruit's incredible. God, isn't the structure Mm. incredible? But I'm not sure you could point a fault at the wine. It's just all in check. Awesome. Well, I think that probably concludes this week's episode. Um, Everyone, you probably know the fullback by now, but please do link, like, and subscribe on whatever channel you're on. Really appreciate the support. 
we'll be posting a link to all the wines in the description of the episode. So if you do want to buy them, um, take a look there. Hugo and I will be back next week with another episode featuring a guest. Um, very exciting. Very exciting indeed. But um, yeah, thanks very much for tuning in. See you next time.